Hello, I'm Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Welcome, everyone, uh, to today's uh, podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest, uh, a brand new author, uh, but somebody that uh, you may have seen on TV for a number of years. Heather McGee is going to be our guest, and we're going to talk about her book, The Sum of Us, and a whole bunch of other things that uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Also, as we are recording this on Thursday evening, word has come through that a ceasefire is about to start in Israel and Palestine. And uh, by the time you hear this, hopefully that will have already happened. Apparently, uh, President Biden made his feelings known to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, that this had to stop. And uh, as we are the bank, uh, (laughs) when the bank calls, things happen. And uh, I'm only laughing because I... You know, it's one of those things where if you don't laugh, you cry about the whole thing. So hopefully the killing, mostly 95% of it, uh, Israel killing Palestinians, civilians, children, has got a pause on it now. But that doesn't mean that those of us who are citizens and who pay for these atrocities uh, can take our foot off the gas pedal. So if you haven't already gone to the White House uh, website and sent your uh, notes and thoughts uh, to President Biden, we need you to do that. Whitehouse.gov and make your feelings known and also call your senators, call your members of Congress. Talk to your neighbors about this. Share some of the links that I've provided on social media and here on this podcast platform with what, um, um, you know, just the facts that people need to have, not the nonstop BS that we have to listen to every time this kind of crap starts. Uh, I'm sick of it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want it to end. Uh, and I want Palestinians to have the same rights every citizen on this planet should have. And um, they are living in a, essentially a prison uh, in in uh, the West Bank in Gaza, a prison that is uh, controlled by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his cronies and the government there. And that's just got to stop. So I hope you feel the same way as I feel. Uh, check out my Facebook and Instagram postings here in the last couple of days. Uh, I have some more thoughts and other things I've shared uh, with you. So um, please, uh, please do that. Um, the uh, the other thing I want to tell you about and give you a heads up about something coming up here in another week is I'm going to have a documentary filmmaker, someone who I consider to be one of the best documentary filmmakers alive today. His name is Raul Peck. But before he comes on uh, next week, probably the end of next week, we never we can't always tell you exactly which day something's going to happen because the news changes from day to day, and we try to make this podcast as nimble as possible uh, to respond to what's uh, going on. But my guess is is that Raul Peck will appear on Friday, May twenty eighth. But I'm bringing up now a week in advance because you need to watch uh, his brand new documentary. It comes in four parts. It's on HBO right now. So you might have to go on to HBO On Demand. If you don't have HBO, you can get it on HBO Max. Uh, if you don't have that, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial. You know, just sign up for the 30 days and watch. The documentary is called Exterminate All the Brutes. And I'm, I believe that is a it's, a, it's a line from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. But Raul Peck, who, again, made this brilliant film, 
couple of years back called I Am Not Your Negro. 2017 is when it came out. It was nominated for an Oscar that year for Best Documentary. And it recounted the life and the legacy of James Baldwin. And of course, Baldwin sadly is no longer with us. So Samuel L. Jackson uh, narrated the film as if he was in Baldwin's, he was doing Baldwin's voice. So if you have a chance to see that someday, please watch that film. But this is his follow-up film to that film. And it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. And it's, it's in four different chapters that are each a little less than an hour long. And I'm going to tell you, I, I watched this last month and, um, I just, I, I just, wow, man, American television does not normally allow this kind of documentary on the air. It's not just a documentary about white supremacy and racism. It really, it, it goes after in such a profound way, covering, jumping back and forth over, you know, 500 years or longer of sort of the history of white people, a people's history of the history of white people. And, you know, while we've done, you know, some good things, the gas grilled barbecue, I think we invented that, uh, putting toothpaste in a tube, I think that's ours. But man, my friends, I don't have to go down the list of the scourge that the race of white people have been on this planet. He starts off the documentary, Peck does, with these three words. He just, he, he just says, civilization, colonialism, and extermination. And that's what you're going to get a history of over these next three plus almost four hours. Uh, it is a radical and beautiful film. And my friends, it must be seen and shared by as many people as possible. Raul Peck himself narrates this one. He doesn't get Samuel L. Jackson. He's, he narrates this film himself. And as he says in his voiceover, the very existence of this film is a miracle. I couldn't agree more. I sat there watching this and thinking, how did he get this? Even on HBO, which, you know, generally they have a good history of looking for the good stuff. But even this... So listen, what I need you to do before he comes on as my guest in a week, I need you to try to watch some or all of this film, Exterminate All the Brutes. Would you do that for me? Because we're going to have a discussion about it and I want you to know what we're talking about. It's a dense film. It's complex. It's layered. You don't want to miss this. So so my that's my, I encourage you to please watch Exterminate All the Brutes. You can find it on HBO. It's on HBO On Demand, I think, until next, this coming um, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, maybe. Uh, that's it. And then they're taking it down. So, um, so you, you, but I think it'll be on HBO Max after that. So just get HBO, get it for free for 30 days. Um, and then Raul Peck will join me for, a, a, I hope, an intense and wonderful conversation here on Rumble um uh on friday may 28th so please watch that if you can and then listen to me uh and and raul talk about it next uh weekend so before we uh, bring heather out uh let me just thank our underwriters uh, for today uh the people uh who are 
backing my voice and this podcast so it gets out to as many millions of people as possible. And I am so grateful for their support. And that underwriter is Raycon. So I'll say this, first of all, one of the best things about being vaccinated is it's been thinking about all the places uh, that I can now visit, even if it's just a walk in the park, a ferry ride across the river, uh, maybe even a a trip uh, back home to Michigan, whatever it is, work, play. A lot of us are going to be on the move again, hopefully as early as this summer. And one of the things I'll be taking on my trip back home will be my Raycons, these wireless earbuds that not only fit my ears really well, better than anything I've, I've tried before, but also just because the quality of it is so cool. So whether you're listening to podcasts or music, maybe even meditating, a pair of these Raycon wireless earbuds provide the crisp, powerful beats at half the price of these other premium audio brands. And Raycons are also built to last for a 24-hour battery life, too. So that's a good thing. You can get through the day, the night, the whatever, long road trip, and they don't need to be recharged. So Raycon, for those of you who are Rumble listeners, is offering 15% off all their products. And here's what you've got to do in order to get the discount. You just have to go to buyraycon, that's B-U-I, buyraycon.com slash rumble to put that in there and you'll get your 15% off anything that you want to purchase from Raycon. So 15% off at buyraycon.com. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash rumble. Buyraycon.com slash rumble. Tell them uh, that you're grateful too for supporting rumble and supporting uh, the work that we do. Our guest today is Heather McGee, and she is one of the most brilliant thinkers and policy experts that we have in this country. For years, uh, she's been producing groundbreaking work on economic justice, racial equality, workers' rights, and other important issues as the president of the think tank, Demos. After she left uh, Demos in 2018, she's taken a deeper look at why the question of America, the richest and most powerful country in the world, can't have nice things for everybody. You know, like good health care for all, good jobs for all, good education for all, clean drinking water, and on and on. What is it about us that prevents us from providing our people with these basic human needs? The answer to this vexing question Frightened white people. That is what seems to be in the way. And she has brilliantly laid out this case. that So many of the problems that America faces. That white fear is not just holding back black Americans and other minority groups. It's also holding back all Americans, including white people, from becoming, you know, a society that's just and modern and has civil democracy and one that takes care of its people. Heather studies uh, these searing questions in her just published book. It's her first book, by the way. It's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. I am pleased to welcome her to Rumble for the very first time. 
So welcome to Rumble, Heather McGee. I'm, I'm so honored that uh, you're here on this uh, uh, podcast today. As I was reading this, I was just, I felt like you were very gently uh, trying to knock our heads together, you know, like 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 grandmother would do, <laughs> take the two kids and go, okay, you two numbskulls, <laughs> you know, let's, this isn't working. Knock it off, <laughs> knock it off. But I'm just going to let you go ahead and explain what the major ethos behind uh, this book, if you want to start with chapter two, <laughs> uh, that the whole concept, because I remember this and, and I grew up, I was born in Flint, Michigan, but grew up in a mostly white area just outside the city. And we had a pool, we had a community pool. And I remember as a, as a young kid, it was so much fun spending time there. And then, and then all of a sudden the, the pool was gone. And when I read this chapter, I thought this couldn't have been the reason, right? When, when a dozen black families had moved in uh, to this area, uh, did, is that, was that it? Did they want to make sure that there would be no integration because there were these court, you should explain this, but there were these wow. court cases, you know, and, and, and we, the white kids didn't get to swim anymore. Didn't mm -hmm. get to have a pool mm -hmm. because it was more important to enforce the racism mm -hmm. than for the parents. Mm -hmm. The parents in town it was more the racism than to than to um, make sure their kids were happy and could go swimming in a pool yeah. on a hot summer day. Yeah. I turn it over to you. You know, Michael. I don't know um, this story of how racism drained the public pools across a, the country is one that keeps unfolding. The more I talk about it, the more people put the pieces together and talk about exactly what you just said, have these memories from their own childhoods. Um, but I do know that the United States used to have nearly 2,000 grand resort style public swimming pools that were paid for by tax dollars. They were built in sort of a building boom in the 1930s and 40s. They were part and parcel of a, a New Deal ethos that said that it's it's the public duty. It is the responsibility of the government to ensure a decent standard of living for our people. And as you said, you know, it was on a hot summer day. This was a public health imperative to have a place where, you know, before air conditioning was, was common, um, to really provide this public amenity and you know, I tell the story of how many of those pools, if not most, were segregated, whether by law and public mm -hmm. ordinance or just by, you know, intimidation and custom and violence, right? Um, and how when the civil rights movement created an, an upswell of Black families advocating and suing to say, hey, those are our tax dollars that built those pools. We want our kids to swim too, Many towns across the country drained their public pools rather than integrate them. And I wow. tell that story at the heart of the book. It's actually the sort of counterfactual, a white kid and a black kid swimming together is on the cover of The Sum of Us. Because for me, it, it helped solve a mystery for me that had been really puzzling me my entire two-decade career in economic policy, working at and then running a think tank dedicated to addressing inequality in America, which is basically why when the United States had figured out the formula for broadly shared prosperity for the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, why did 
the majority of white voters turn their backs on that formula and throw in their lot with the private sector, with the corporate class, with the elites. And that mystery for me, I knew how it had happened, right? I knew I knew about the tax policy and the trade policy and, you know, all the, you know, the attacks on labor, all the things that you and your career have have done so well to sort of show us the the, the human stories of, but I didn't know the why. And so mm. this idea about how racism drained the pool became for me um, an allegory of what happened when a society, a white society that had seen government as the guarantor of, of a middle-class life from all the programs of the New Deal, the massive suburban housing developments, the backstopping and creation of, of mortgages and no down payment home ownership, social security, high wage and hour laws, collective bargaining enforcement, the GI Bill of 1944, putting mm-hmm. a generation into home ownership and free public college paid for by the state and federal grants, right? This was, this was sort of the birthright of white Americans in the middle of the 20th century. And virtually everything that I described was for whites only and segregated either explicitly, like in the mortgage market, which the federal government said, we will not lend to black families. We will not let black families move into this these subsidized housing developments. Or the GI Bill, which was race neutral on its face, but was filtered, the benefits were filtered through segregated housing and higher education sectors. And so the white middle class was created out of this ethos of big government, In 1956 and 1960, two-thirds of white Americans believed that government ought to guarantee a job for everyone who wanted one, a job guarantee, and a minimum income in the country that nobody could fall below. And by 1964, that support among white Americans had dropped from nearly 70% to just 35% and stayed low ever since. And so really, truly, it was the civil rights movement, the, the, the final sort of move of the Democratic Party from becoming the New Deal Party to expanding to be the party of, of equal rights under that that social contract, that was the betrayal. And you saw white Americans turn away from government, drain the public pool, uh, you know, sort of throw in their lot with, with a kind of corporate vision of society, um, which is a very old, you know, choose your race over your class bargain. And of course, that meant that, just as you said, Mike, that that white families lost out too, right? That, of course, now when we're at a time 50 years later, when 1% of the country owns more wealth than the entire middle class, the inequality era that was ushered in with the votes and support of white Americans, you know, in overwhelming numbers ever since Reagan, uh, you know, has, has created a lot of suffering and economic pain for white families too. So that's that's the thesis of the book, that racism has a cost, ultimately, for everyone. I'm so glad when you said that you decided that you wanted to explore the why. Mm-hmm. Journalism, you know, if you took Journalism 101, is about, you know, going out there as a reporter and telling the public the who, what, when, where, how, and why, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, that, was the, that was the very first thing you were taught. Mm-hmm. But while I was growing up, and by the time I was a teenager, it seemed to me that journalism, it did a pretty good job of telling you the who, naming the names and, and the where it was and, and uh, how it happened and what exactly did happen and when it happened. And oftentimes not very good about telling us the why. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm just I'm curious. I mean, you you didn't know, and I think you started your journey in 2017. So you probably wrote this then in 18, 19, 20. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 18, 19, 20. But um, but before the demonstrations of last year, before mm-hmm. the murder of George Floyd, all all of this then begins to happen as you're finishing this book. And I'm just curious of the impact that that had on you and, and how you, because I can see what you're doing in, on so many pages of this book. You're trying in a very actually kind and loving way to reach out to those parts of white America that still don't kind of get it. Mm. And, um, and the fact that you care that you want them to get it, you know, it's, I think it's, um, it's very generous on your Mm -hmm. part. Well, thank you, Michael. I, I have a lot of empathy. That's just sort of how I'm wired, right? We have, you know, it's just sort of something I've always, it's a way I've always been. And I often look, and this is something that my parents taught me to do, I look to the more powerful people in a scenario. Um, you know, I mean, racist ideas have been sold by the narrow, self-interested, wealthy elite since before our nation's founding. And I'm more interested in holding accountable those who are selling those ideas for their own profit than the people who are desperate enough to buy them. And it feels to me like this formula, right? Have a, a, a landowning, property-owning, wealthy elite that needs the allegiance and, you know, kind of, in some cases, literal, like, you know, manpower and firepower, but certainly political allegiance of the broader white working and middle classes in order to hold up the system that props them up because the elite tells white folks, blame black and brown people, separate yourself from black and brown people. You're better than them. You don't want to be in solidarity with them. You don't want to organize into a union with them. You don't want to swim in the same pool as them. You're better than them. You're like us. That's been sort of the the racial bargain of the American dream in America. And so as I've grown up since the 1980s, seeing how the benefit of that racial bargain has gotten smaller and smaller as inequality has grown year after year, as, as the wealthy have, have simply stopped funding our common good since since racism drained the pool and rich people could build backyard pools and have, you know, members only private clubs, right? And that's sort of what's happened across our economy. It's what happened to public college, which used to be free because government picked up the tab. And now mm-hmm. right. majority of states, the majority of money for money for state schools comes from private families, comes from tuition. And then the government makes money off of it, right? With interest-bearing loans instead of grants. That, to me, is racism draining the pool. It hurts white families, black families, brown families, everybody. You know, healthcare is another. We, We privatized, we moved away from any kind of momentum to fully create a public national health insurance program. And it was really the sort of racists in Washington who, who, who fought Harry Truman's original proposal, and it's racists today who are opposing Medicaid expansion at the state level. We have this Mason-Dixon line where Mm -hmm. the federal government is offering free money to the states to let working class people in their state 
be able to afford to see a doctor because they're not getting health insurance on the job and they're paid too little to buy it in the open market. And they're refusing. And the sociological research shows that race has a huge, uh, you know, correlation with, with the more black people there are in a state, basically the less willing the white power structure is to expand Medicaid and how racialized the idea of the Affordable Care Act is because it was passed by President Obama. So I feel like for me, I came at this issue from an economic standpoint, and it's very clear that the economy is simply not working for most people. It's obviously working better for the typical white family than it is for the typical black family, but it's not doing great for the typical white family either. And this country has so much wealth. Our people are so productive. If we could simply reject this zero-sum worldview, this idea that progress for people of color is a threat to white people, that a dollar more in a black family's pocket means a dollar less in a white family's pocket. You're literally hearing this rhetoric again when Biden is and Harris are talking about the American Jobs and Families Plan. You're hearing, you know, mostly white folks saying, well, if we pay for universal child care, you know, that's coming out of my pocket. Or, you know, if we if we pay for infrastructure, you know, that's that means that I'm going to have to pay. And it's really this this ideology that now, today, it is so plain to see where mm. it's coming from, right? You had uh, a phony millionaire in the White House having this as his, you know, core story. You have paid bullies in the corporate media like Tucker Carlson and billionaire plutocrats with their own propaganda machine like the Sinclairs and the Murdochs. And this is their bread and butter. This is the story that they are selling on an hourly basis in social media and on Fox News and right wing radio. And what is the goal? The goal is to get white voters to keep supporting a party whose agenda is tax cuts, deregulation and globalized trade. I'm just curious. Um why do you care? Mm-hmm. Why do you care, especially for a group of people? And not, not we're not talking about all white people, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the majority of white people, the majority of all white people, the majority voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. 65% of the men and 50, this last time, I think it was 55, somewhere between 53 and 55% of the white women voted for Trump. So, and in fact, I believe Trump won every white age demographic with the exception of young people, young voters between the ages of 18 and 35. Um, so clearly white people have taken a stand. If, if you, if you see three white men walking down the street toward you, this is, this is, this is how I just tell people, if I see three white guys walking toward me, first of all, I, I already know two of them voted for Trump Mm. and, and then I just try to you know, go to the other side of the street. Uh, <laughs> I don't want any trouble when they see me, <laughs> but I'm just, but, but, ser- but the fact then that, that I've got to believe, I got to believe now that more than one out of every two white women mm-hmm. are Trumpsters. And it's like, Oh my God. And, and how, how did Obama get elected? How did Biden mm-hmm. get elected? Mm-hmm. How did this happen? And I thought, well, because we're a changing country. Um, we will sometime in the 2040s. Uh, white people will not be the majority race. And our young people, we've raised a generation or two of young people now that the vast majority of them are not haters, not bigots, not homophobes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so good on us, you know, for raising them 
the right way. But nonetheless, between now and uh, 2045, um, what do we, what do we do here? Because I think, I think if some people, some white people who would read your book, I think a light bulb or two would go off and, and, and then in their own self-interest, not because they suddenly, uh, you know, loved black and brown people in this country, but sadly it's too bad that that just wouldn't be enough, but that where they would actually understand that, Oh man, I'm screwing myself. Mm. You know, this, and what you call the solidarity dividend, that if we did, if we all had this solidarity with each other, the dividend that that would pay, explain that to people listening to this. Yeah, so I, I started to identify, right, the zero sum and how much that was holding us back and how much the drained pool politics was really at the root of so many of the ways that our country has fallen down uh, since the golden era of shared prosperity and the real sort of advent of the American dream. You know, I link it to our lack of health care, uh, the college debt crisis, the decline in labor organizing and the strength of collective bargaining because racism is used as a tool by the bosses to divide workers by color. And then, however, I was also able to see how, because so many of the problems that I'd been working on for so long had this sort of common thread of racial resentment, racism in our politics and policymaking, if we just pull on that common thread, progress will seem that much closer on all of these issues that otherwise seem kind of pretty complicated. And and so it became clear to me that the opposite of the zero sum, the idea of people coming together across lines of race, having each other's backs, the very old labor concept of solidarity, your fight is my fight. No one fights alone, right? I'm going to believe you when you say that you are struggling with this problem, and I'm going to link arms with you, and we're going to win together. And that's going to help me, and it's going to help you. I think we can unlock those kinds of solidarity dividends across our economy. Basically, if white people stop seeing us as their enemy and their competition and recognize that we all do better when we all do better and that the people who are making it harder for families to get ahead are not the black and brown struggling families who have no power to do much, you know, in our in our lives, in our communities, no power to keep ourselves safe from the police, no power to avoid job discrimination and 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 mortgage discrimination and all the things, environmental injustice and pollution, right? All of the things that we are struggling with, that in fact, if there is a more of a sense of of solidarity, uh, then we can have better things for all of us, right? The opening line of my book was, have you ever wondered why it is we can't seem to have nice things in America? And I, I, I don't mean like drive-through espresso. I mean, nice things like childcare and healthcare and well-funded schools and a reasonable response to a global climate change. You know, th- these are the types of things that throughout the research for the Some of Us I was able to see are are actually possible if we can assemble and hold a multiracial, cross-class, working and middle-class coalition to to refill the pool of, of public goods, to take on concentrated wealth and power, um, to rebuild our country from the bottom up. And it will be in the interest of all of us. You know, you've now got all these, you know, Wall Street economists 
finally getting wise to the fact that the racial economic divide, having so many of our players on the sidelines saddled with debt and discrimination and disadvantage is actually bad for GDP, right? Shockingly, right? When, you, when you've got mm-hmm. so many would-be entrepreneurs and, and, and would-be innovators and workers that can't work, can't build, can't innovate because they're being discriminated against and because they are living in neighborhoods that have been strategically disinvested for generations, that's bad for the economy overall. So it's costing us trillions of dollars a year to have the kind of economic divides that we do today. I think too, again, I have thought this since I was a kid, that this, that the way racism has worked and has kept um, a black and brown people at bay, kept them down, kept them not, not, not able to participate in the system, that what have we lost? Mm. What have we lost by not, they, they weren't able to go to a good school they weren't able to go to a, a college that had a real science lab. Yep. They weren't able that 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 the, the, in my mind, and maybe maybe I'm just I'm creating a film about this in my head constantly. That's that that the person who was going to find the cure for cancer was never allowed to do that because they were black and they couldn't go to that school and they couldn't get the the, the breaks that the white kids got. But what if that person who was going to discover that? And when you look at, you know, uh, thanks to Black History Month now, we've been taught how many inventions have come mm-hmm. from uh, black men and women mm-hmm. uh, in this country. The, the, the list is long and it's amazing that we were never taught this in school. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. it only, and it only makes you think, what else have we missed out on? That's right. The touchtone telephone, the light bulb. Yes. The gas mask, the traffic light, blood banks, the gas furnace, open heart surgery, the math to enable the moon landing. These are all from... Yeah, don't don't leave out peanut butter. Yes, peanut butter, <laughs> uh, street lights, right? Um, you know, this, this, this is really the idea, right? If you, if you reject what has been the core old story in America, right? The belief in a hierarchy of human value that some groups of people are simply better than others. Then, then the fact that we are a nation that is hurtling towards having no racial majority, um, that is a place where there's someone here with a tie to every community on the globe, that can be our superpower. But if we hold on to these notions of white supremacy, if we let modern day justifications and excuses keep allowing white Americans to disdain, distrust, fear, black and brown people, um, then we're never going to reach that potential. And we're going to be a broken nation. And the nice things that we don't have, that that so many other countries have when we talk about healthcare, daycare, yep. uh, college, uh, yep. uh, uh, a living wage, all these things that we don't have. I saw this thing the other day that said a, a, a woman... Uh, mother giving birth in the United States has a three times greater chance of dying during childbirth than a woman does in Turkmenistan. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I had to read that again. Okay, wait, is that right? Is that one of the stands? You know, are you kidding me? Yeah. That, and that, and that, if she lives in Cleveland or Detroit, and there, mm-hmm. there's a, a list of American cities, 
that it was five times mm. greater chance of dying mm. of childbirth than in some of what we would consider to be some of the lesser poorer countries on this planet. And it's like, why, we, why are we doing this to ourselves? You know, how did they get all the white people to fight and die in the Civil War mm. when most of those dead white people on those battlefields never owned a slave? Why? Because they didn't have $10 to their name. Mm-hmm. They could, if they, let's say they believed in slavery. They thought slavery was a good idea. Well, they could never own one because the system was set up that the rich and the landowners were the ones that were going to have the slaves and you were going to go out there to Gettysburg, uh, to wherever, and give your life for the rich man mm-hmm. who has sent you there. That's, when you just step back from that for a minute, it's like, why? What? what, what come on. At some point, don't you realize that you've been had? I mean, that is the question, you know. And and when I traveled to Mississippi, to Canton, Mississippi, outside of Jackson, to talk with workers there who had just tried to organize a Nissan auto factory and had lost the union vote, I went down there. I, I was I'm from the Midwest, so I knew that it was sort of a no-brainer to want a unionized manufacturing job, right? The big three unionized car jobs were the best jobs around when I was growing up on the south side of Chicago. And, And so I felt like when I would talk to workers, it would be sort of clear that they'd have better pay, better pensions, better healthcare. They'd have, you know, you know, a say in the terms of their employment. And, after the first day of talking to workers, white, black, for and against the union, it. I went home to my hotel, I went back to my hotel, and I just thought, well, maybe I was wrong. Because what they described to me was this world in which they called it the buddy-buddy system, in which a mostly white management made it clear that the harder, more back-breaking, on-the-line, dirtier, sweatier, more relentless jobs were going to be all black folks, men and women. And the further you got away from the sort of, you know, automation of the line into the what they called the cushier jobs, one of the workers told me, you can tell when a job is so cush because you don't have to go home and take a shower before you go to the happy hour. Mm. Right? That mm. those jobs got whiter and whiter. The jobs that were temp contract jobs that were, you know, working side by side with people who were full time, but just, you know, had lower pay and less benefits and can be fired at any time, those were more likely to be black workers. And those black workers also weren't eligible to vote uh, in, the, right. in, you know, in the union. So I left that first day and I thought, well, maybe actually a union and its rules is actually not in the interest of white workers. If they know that they can get ahead and get off the line and get a better job and get treated better by management – if they play their cards right, and part of that playing the cards right was not signing a union card, that their skin color would give them an advantage. And so maybe it actually was better for them and in their self-interest not to link up arms with these black folks, right, who were having the crappier jobs. And then I had to remind myself the next morning, but none of them had a pension. So my dad was an assembly line worker at General Motors in Flint uh, beginning in the late 1930s. And the Ruther brothers, once they took over the factories in Flint, 
for those 44 days in 1936 and 37 and got the union recognized that in the 1940s, one of the priorities of the Ruthers, who were the founders of the UAW, mm-hmm. United Auto Workers, um, was to uh, integrate the assembly line. Very radical thought. But the, but the thinking was already starting with around Harry Truman and integrating the military and, you know, some of the early places that where integration was beginning. And so they did this. They made it part of their next contract. They threatened to strike. I think there was a strike that the, that the hard and crummy, the worst jobs were not to be all the black citizens of Flint down in what was called the foundry in the, in the sort of basement, the bowels of the factory. And that, that this was to be shared by everybody. And you may be rotating and you may have to spend your week or month or whatever in the foundry, mm. uh, regardless of your color. And I'll tell you what, I grew up, I know I did. I grew up in a different kind of American city because our dads and moms, those who worked, especially in the factory during World War II, um, they worked with people that were not like them. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to get for those in power to get them to hate them because when they're your friend, when they're working next to you on the assembly line, it's a different it's a different ball game because you realize they're human beings mm-hmm. and they have kids and they want the same thing for their kids that you want for your kids. And so because of this integration that because we had a union, here's the these are the benefits we got yes you yes you were going to now work with with black people and hispanic people whatever down the assembly line here's what you got though in return from the union free health care i mean free health care no copays no deductibles free dentist uh free lawyer there was free if you were a uaw member free legal services for any kind of civil case uh if you needed a lawyer the lawyer was free Four weeks paid vacation, plus the two weeks paid off at Christmas time. So really, six weeks a year paid vacation. That that these people who were not college graduates, who had working class jobs, but they had the, they had the weekend off, and they learned a new word called vacation, a word that did not exist in the nineteenth century. And hmm. what you just said is true. That's exactly they understood that the power of having that union and having an integrated union, because when you're fighting General Motors, you want everybody on board, no matter what their color is. You're not, yeah. gonna, you're not gonna make that a requirement, whether or not you could be in the union. No, 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 you need everybody on the front lines because they are coming at you with clubs and, and chains and everything else. Um, I saw that and learned that, and 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 the end of that story is is that Flint became the first city in the country to elect a black mayor before Stokes in Cleveland mm. in 1966. It was not a majority black city then, so that means a yep. good chunk of the white people had to vote had to vote for the for the black mayor Floyd McCree, and and that's what what I grew up in in seeing that. That, that when racism was removed, everybody benefited. Everybody. And you point this out so well in this book. I just I'd wished that we'd known you <laughs> growing up in Flint <laughs> because you have nailed this so beautifully. And how do we take this message 
because let's face it. I mean, the, the, how many of our hundreds of thousands are listening to you and I right now? I'm going to guess the majority of them share our, our point of view on this and are asking the question, what can I do uh, to convince my, my uh, brother-in-law? What can I, I can't believe that my aunt said she voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. What can I do about this? Because if we can get over this hurdle together, then we're going to have the country we want. We're going to have the nice things that they have in Turkmenistan. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I'm sure the Turkmenistani no, people no, are wonderful people. It's yes, just that no, their country no. does not have as much money as this one, and yet somehow right. they're yes. treating their mamas better. Exactly. That's, of course, and, and you laugh because you don't want to cry. Yeah. Because really, you know, I mean, they literally... People on this planet have proven they can do just about any of this anywhere, and we can't do it in the richest country on earth. So how do we, how do we, Heather, get this message across? Because you know, a lot of people. I'm sure you've heard this in your travels, and now with the book out, you're, you know, talking mm-hmm. to people. People are so afraid that Trump is going to come back. He hasn't really gone away. You can see he still controls Congress today. How how do you get these 62 members of the House? Uh, last night to vote against the Asian hate crime bill. Like, like what is wrong with you people? It's, it's what do we have to do? Uh, Because it seems like everybody's got a, got a, a a Jim Jordan in their family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every, I mean, I'm talking about white people. And, um, and so we have to make sure that we keep moving the ball down the field that we don't go back to Trump and and that the the seditionists who wouldn't recognize the votes of Georgia and Arizona have to be removed in next year's election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to organize. You know, I mean, that's really the only thing that has ever durably changed consciousness. And you you give the example so beautifully of what the UAW was able to do with white workers. It is true that for most of the 20th century, you know, there's a massive difference in your progressivism overall if you're a white man in a labor union versus not because of exactly that, because you're you're shoulder to shoulder with people and you are taught to see the enemy somewhere else than, you know, right next to you, right? You're taught to understand that the boss has the power and you're taught the how poisonous the divide and conquer is. And so we have to organize. We have to pass the PRO Act because we've got to actually give more people the life-changing experience of being in collective bargaining. Ordinary people sitting across from the boss and saying, this is what our people demand. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things, making institutions, palaces for the people, as is are all over New York and the Midwest. Um, we've got to give more regular folks the opportunity to have that kind of leadership and to have that kind of transformational experience of organizing. Um, I talked to a uh, young woman named Bridget, uh, who's from Kansas City, and she was a white woman, Irish descent, you know, admitted very, very readily to me that she had believed the kind of anti-immigrant, anti-black folks in the city ideas of her family and, and, you know, the media that she listened to. And And it wasn't until she went to her first organizing meeting of the Fight for 15 in a Union, which in Kansas City, the organization is called Stand Up KC. And she saw a Latina woman stand up and 
talk about her own life. Three kids, two-bedroom apartment, bad plumbing, feeling trapped in her, her life, that like she had nowhere to go. She was also a minimum wage fast food worker. That Bridget said, you know, I saw myself in her for the first time. And she began organizing. And not only did she organize and start to have relationships with black and brown workers, but she also started to saw, see a, a higher horizon for herself. Because before that, you know, she'd kind of really bought into not just the, you know, there's something wrong with them, but if, if we're making the same amount of money, maybe there's something wrong with me, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe I will never see, you know, the, the poverty in my rearview mirror. You know, they're never going to pay me $15 an hour, she told me. It was what she was thinking. And yet it was through organizing that she became a leader, that she began to see how racism was, as she said, it was bad for white workers too, because it keeps us -hmm. divided from our black and brown brothers and sisters. She said, as as long as we're divided, we're conquered, right? That's the kind of consciousness change that comes from organizing. Yeah, that's so true. And to people listening to this, you know, there are places, I'll put a couple up from my website here on the podcast website, of where you can contact that will help you, like if you want to try to unionize your workplace. There, there are organizations, there are, there are departments within most unions that are set up to help you do that. Um, you know, you don't have to say to yourself, I have no idea how I would do this. There are, trust me, there are already groups. If, they're, if they've already formed in Kansas City, no offense to Kansas City, but my friends, they're, you're in Boise, they're there. You're in Topeka, they're there. And, um, and I'll put a couple up so you can just get started if you want to do that. And, the, and, and Heather, you referred to the PRO Act. There are a number of bills right now uh, sitting in one house or the other and uh, mostly piling up uh, in the driveway uh, leading up to the uh, uh, United States Senate. Mm. But there are, there are things that we need to act on and act on now. And I think we all learned a lesson when President Obama was elected and he came in with, again, a good heart, uh, wanting to hold hands with everybody and get along and um, and got crucified. And then he realized, oh, that's the way it's going to be. And so we, we got maybe we got one big thing passed, Obamacare, uh, mm-hmm. Affordable Care Act. It wasn't everything that we wanted it to be. It wasn't everything he wanted it to be. And, and then it was, they had just decided, just like McConnell said a couple weeks ago, it's if Biden wants it, we're against it. That's it. That's mm-hmm. just their policy. And so we now have the same thing happening again, where they're going to try and blockade everything uh, that's going to help people. Basically, that's just, I'm not, I'm not even referring to it as a Democratic or Republican thing. It's just some very cruel ideas on the part of the majority of the people in the United States Senate that, um, I mean, I should say the majority of Republicans we hold the majority. Heather, what can we do about the filibuster? It seems like we have the Senate, and I think we should be moving as fast as possible to get as much done as possible. And I have been very impressed, very impressed, with how fast Biden has shot out of the gate. But there's a despair. I get I get this mail from people. They leave me voicemails. Oh, it's rough to listen to. They are so afraid that we're not going to get any of these things, even though we have the House, we have the Senate, and we have the White House. Why would we not be able to get these things? You know, so many things that our country desperately needs are 
going to require a 60 vote threshold, which is not what the founders intended, uh, which is not a majority. It's a supermajority. It's because there is a minority veto that is not the kind of talking filibuster that you imagine. Sort of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, somebody's yeah. standing up there because they care so much. No, they all they have to do is pick up a phone and call to the Senate cloakroom and put a hold on a bill and it never sees the light of day. That is not a representative democracy. These things that we're talking about, the American Jobs Plan, reinvest in our infrastructure, create millions of jobs, rip up all the lead pipes in the country and replace them, uh, finally. These are all parts of the American Jobs Plan, rural broadband, uh, universal broadband across the country so that everybody can get online. You know, that's overwhelmingly popular. It's nearly 70% popular, the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, what we were talking about, the universal child care, paid family leave, super popular. And yet we've got this delay that is happening because of a Jim Crow era relic of a Senate rule known as the filibuster and other, you know, kind of tactics that are used to delay and to give the minority in the Senate a veto. It is completely within the power of the Democrats in Washington, in the Senate, including the moderate conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, to pass a reform to the filibuster, to make it a talking filibuster. So you actually have to put some skin in the game and Uh make an effort to stop this country, to take food out of people's mouths, to stop a $15 minimum wage, to stop the PRO Act, which would increase the penalties for companies that violate workers' rights and make it easier for folks to join a union. Um, These are the kinds of things that are actually popular across the country. They would help us rebuild the middle class, and yet they are being stopped because we've got a couple of Democrats who are misreading their voters, I have to say, right? We keep seeing all this polling about how $15 an hour is more popular than, you know, these Democrats in their own state. And we've got uh, a Republican minority that thinks that it can win by rigging the rules, by killing progress in, you know, arcane Senate rules fights that nobody's paying attention to, and by throwing red meat, culture war, racial resentment stuff about Dr. Seuss at its base. And that's why I talk about how racism in our politics has a cost for everyone, because it is a vestige of structural racism, the Jim Crow relic of the filibuster. It was a tool that was really honed and made into what it is today by people opposing civil rights. And it is the Republican Party's idea of themselves that they don't have to govern. They don't have to improve people's lives because they've got Fox News and all they need to do is point the finger at brown and black people and immigrants and keep white folks distracted enough to keep voting against their own interests. So what do we do? So we got to organize. I mean, truly, that is, you know, I'm a policy wonk. That's that's what I did for nearly 20 years. And yet, after the journey that I took to write The Some of Us, I, I, I was more enamored than ever with the transformative power of organizing. And we've been mm-hmm. for the past five years in a in a high water moment of organizing, right? In 2016, one out of every four Americans had taken part in some kind of protest. In 2020, we had a summer with the biggest grassroots demonstrations in the history of the United States, most of them in majority white counties to assert that Black Lives Matter after the murders of of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey. And so 
you know, this is a moment when protesting, demonstrating, we can't stop. We have to keep the pressure on the Democratic Party. We have to keep Republicans fearing that this is going to be, uh, that we are going to be showing up in the midterms and that we're watching what they're doing. They're trying to do it in the dark of night. And we really, really do have to uh, keep organizing for the America that we want. That multiracial coalition that is the majority in this country, that did, you know, elect Biden and Harris, that did do the impossible in Georgia, that is the multiracial majority in this country. And, and we've got to keep organizing and exercise our governing power. So that means part of the organizing is that we um, have to get everybody to the polls next year in the, in the midterm elections. Absolutely. Because otherwise that this new math where uh, 51 is not a majority, but it has to be 60. Um, we're just going to be stuck with this. Mm-hmm. And Joe Manchin's not up for reelection until 2024. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I had a, I did an episode a week or two ago about Manchin and cinema. And I just said, look, just tell Biden what it is you want for your states. You ask for all the pork you want. If in return, we can just get your vote so we can get these things passed. I think everybody listening to me said, yes, whatever West Virginia, first of all, we want to help West Virginia anyway. So whatever West Virginia needs, uh, fight for that. Get that for them. You hold the power. Yes, you do. We don't like that. Too bad. You hold the power, Joe Manchin. So meet with the president and tell him what he's got to do to get your vote. There's got to be something. You know, I don't know. Isn't that the old way that politics, didn't Lyndon Johnson yeah. just bring them in one by one and tell them they had to vote for the Civil Rights Act? And they said no. And he said, yes, you're going to vote for it. And just give me one thing that you need. And he got these Democrats in in the South to vote for the Civil Rights Act. But, you know, was that just another time? And, I, and I'm, we don't live there anymore in that time. And, and now we can't. Uh, there can't be any horse trading or some, you know, the old school politics of where we need their vote to get rid of the filibuster the way, you know, the way that it's been the last couple decades. I mean, I don't know what you must have put a lot of thought into this. So I think it's going to happen. I think that right now Manchin is delusional about the kind of Republicans that exist, the kind of bipartisanship that can happen. Um, I think Kristen Cinema is very well supported by the business lobby in her state. That's that's her core constituency. That's who organizes with her. That's who has her ear. And so things like a fifteen dollars minimum wage are you know things that she's going to be opposed to. And so she wants to because they're popular. The fifteen dollars minimum wage in Arizona. It's better to to say she wants to be bipartisan and and. And, and talk about rules instead of saying, no, I just oppose a $15 minimum wage, right? The way the business lobby wants me to. But we've, we've just, you know, there are a lot of grassroots organizations in both West Virginia and Arizona that are putting pressure on them, and that's what we've got to do. And just keep putting the pressure on, and you're optimistic. That, that, I am. Well, that, man, that, well, that made my day, so. <laughs> that, that made my day. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it, uh, um, well, listen, we, we are running out of time here and I just, I want to thank you for writing this book. I want to encourage everybody listening to read it. It's called the sum of us, what racism costs everyone and how we 
can prosper together. Thank you uh, for writing uh, this book. What are you going to do next? What's what's on the agenda here for you? Um, well, I am actually going back on the road. Um, I am going to go back on the road to go back to some of the places I visited where I was able to see that solidarity dividend, mm. people coming together across lines of race to make something better for everyone. Uh, I'm going to record that in a podcast that'll come out early next year with the Obama's production company, Higher Ground. It'll be on Spotify. I'm so excited to to visit with the people that shared their America with me for the book. Mm. Find out, you know, how this past couple of years has been for them. Find new stories of people coming together to stand up for each other and have each other's backs across lines of race during the pandemic. And keep showing that the America that we're becoming is out there. And, and we've just got to shine a light. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for everything that you've done in the years uh, before this book, all, all the great work all the facts and information that you provide for the rest of us so that we can go and make the arguments so we can go and make our documentary films. You know, you, whether you know it or not, uh, have played an important role in what a lot of other people have done to try and move the, the ball down the field. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for that, Heather McGee. And thank you, all of you um, who've listened uh, in here today. Uh, don't forget uh, to please watch Raul Peck's brand new documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes. It's mm. it's on. Uh, have you seen this? Oh my God! If you haven't, you've got to. Uh, it's amazing. This. I I've watched the first two parts, and we're gonna. Finish oh, you have! Oh my God! Yeah, it's yes. Well, he's he he's gonna be my guest uh, next to Friday, Wonderful. and uh, but I want everybody who's gonna listen. You've got to see this film first, so you know what we're talking about because it's it's the most amazing documentary I, I've seen here recently, and and. Uh, and his James Baldwin documentary was so great. So everybody, mm. please, if you don't have HBO, get a free trial for 30 days and watch this. Uh, you might have to go to HBO On Demand or HBO Max, uh, whatever. But watch this and then and then tune in uh, the end of next week here. And uh, um, and I'll have Raul Peck on to, uh, to talk about this. All right, everybody. Uh, we'll uh, see you here sometime around the beginning of the week. Uh, until then, let's uh, do what we need to do uh, to correct things what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Thanks for writing your letters to President Biden about that. And uh, don't forget to get your shot. And I'm still wearing my mask, folks. I have, I'm doubly dosed. And uh, I believe that we've never seen this coronavirus before. We are all part of a grand experiment right now. We're all guinea pigs in it. And uh, we've got to do some basic things just for a little while longer. Get your shots. Wear your mask. And be careful. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, and our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz. I'm Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. <laughs>